Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would join us here this morning, that you would save us from the dangers ahead. I ask for you to be our teacher in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. It happened just a few months ago that I began receiving emails from um, people regarding one Ernie Knoll. I'm just curious, how, is that name familiar to more than half of you? Is it familiar to you? So that, that happened just a few months ago. And the first email I received regarding Ernie, um, I had no idea that Ernie claimed to be having inspired visions. I just received a copy, someone had cut and paste a copy of a dream he had regarding the many facets of worship inside a large metaphorical church. So this lecture isn't about Ernie. That might comfort some of you. It's not. But it's interesting to me that back in 1888, after God chose A.T. Jones to be the bearer of a very important message, several things happened that were a disaster for A.T. Jones. We should so watch this in our own experience. For one thing, A.T. Jones was not well received. Do you all know that A.T. Jones was a genius? Any of you know that? Um, he had a photographic memory. Um, the, the man made presentations before Congress where he was grilled about the inaccuracy of his references and was able to just quote verbatim the original source document. And as one man representing our church was instrumental in preventing a Sunday law in yeah, in Congress. But A.T. Jones wasn't well received. And do you recall from the book of Hebrews, one thing you should be very careful not to allow to crop up in your experience? I'm speaking of Hebrews 13, or Hebrews 12, excuse me, where it says, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. You know, if you accept the thoughts that were shared in this last presentation, and you allow God to send you to do his work and share his truth and accomplish what he bids you, in all likelihood, you're going to be poorly received at least a good chunk of the time. And we ought to be satisfied to be treated the way that Jesus was. But A.T. Jones had quite a support when he was here in the States. I mean, Ellen White, the prophet, was his friend. And it's very encouraging, even if each letter you get from her does tell you something wrong with your life, that at the same time it supports the general trend of what you're doing. Wouldn't that be encouraging to you? Isn't that exactly what it does every time you read it? Well, this was the experience of A.T. Jones when he would get these materials. And, um, and then Ellen White went to Australia. 
when she went to Australia, the length of time between when, well, between when he would hear from her was greatly lengthened. And can you imagine the logic that would go on in his mind? That if Elmite were here, this wouldn't happen. These people wouldn't get away with such and such. This would be rebuked. Here he was in Battle Creek, the center of everything, and it was a center of a mess, especially in the 1880s and 90s. I mean, also in the 1900s and 1910s and 1920s and 1870s and 1860s. Um, it was, it's really, if you do a, a search on Battle Creek, not a lot of pleasantness comes up in the Ellen White CD-ROM. But during that time, while A.T. Jones was missing the power of a local prophet, one young lady named Anna began having visions. <clears throat> Have any of you read any of the productions of Anna Geimeyer? Maybe she arranged to have them all burned, and that would have been well if she had done that. But Anna had very interesting dreams. If you ever do a Google search for the term lucid dreams, you'll find interesting and unedifying material to the effect that if the statistics I read there are accurate, probably five or six of you are able sometimes to realize that you're in your dream and able to modify what you do in your dreams. Is there anyone that's able to do that in your dreams? That's, that's lucid dreaming, and it's not a very rare ability. I don't have it. <laughs> um, and some people have very vivid dreams, where their dreams seem as real as the reality, sometimes more than reality. This is why I despise those spiritual gift assessments that ask you about your interest and your skills and your personality to try to determine your spiritual gifts. The one I remember that irritated me the most was one that in one battery of questions asked, do you have vivid dreams? Well, which spiritual gift do you think it was trying to differentiate? <laughs> Do you understand why it bothers me? We don't need false prophets. But Anna Geimeyer's dreams, you know, she was in a spiritual family with a spiritual set of parents. They were talking about the end of time and the mark of the beast and the Antichrist and the sins and the testimonies. And do any of you realize that you dream about the things you think about? I recognize that. Anna had spiritual dreams. Her dad got pretty excited. Can you imagine how a love of notoriety might lead to an excitement like that? Wouldn't it be pretty cool to have to be like Philip? Can you remember Philip, his seven daughters, or however it was, they were prophets. He began to promote Anna's dreams. A.T. Jones got a hold of those dreams. When he read them, he recognized in them the very same spirit that he had become so familiar with in the testimonies. And he began to think through what Jesus had said. Um, that my sheep hear my voice and they, you know, they follow me. They know me. And he recognized the voice. And so I'm summarizing the story, making it shorter. A.T. Jones got up in front of the Dime Tabernacle, more than a thousand people. 
he did not tell them what he was doing, and he read them a familiar portion from the testimonies, and then quoted this from Jesus, and said, do you recognize the voice? Nerds, can you hear the voice of Jesus in the writings of Ellen White? And what's the audience going to answer to that question? Of course they can hear the voice. He'd read another thing from Ellen White, can you hear the voice? Yes, they can hear the voice. And then he pulled a fast one. He read something from Anna, or Anna. He said, can you hear the voice? And yes, they could hear the voice. And so could he. And he began to explain how God had visited the church. And since Ellen White was in Australia, God had re-given us the gift of prophecy right there in Battle Creek. Mm. You know, if it was true, that would be very nice. Wouldn't you appreciate if there had been two prophets and we would just have these two? Wouldn't that be precious? <laughs> the next day, which was Sunday, but this was in the time of verse history when mail went on Sundays. Um, A.T. Jones got a letter from Australia. And in that letter, he was rebuked for what he had done the day before. Wow. Wow. It took more than a month to get there. He was asked, how did you dare to recommend the, or promote the teachings of Anna to the people? And in what she wrote to A.T. Jones, there is material. I'd like to read you a bit of it. Let me see if I can find it. I want to use the word tidal wave more often than I thought she did. Just a minute. Maybe I can't find it for you as fast as I thought I could. But maybe I could if I did it a different way. Um, I'm not going to spend your time looking for it. I'll tell you what it says, and you can ask me to send it to you. She was told, she's told us, that what happened with Anna would happen again and again. She said it would occur in scores of instances. Scores, that's 20s. That's a lot of false prophets. She warned us about it, and it did happen. In fact, after she died, it began to happen with quite a bit of frequency. A few people while she was alive, but more people after she died. Margaret Rowan, is that a familiar name to any of you? She was the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Reform Movement, but not the one that is, has headquarters in Germany or here in Sacramento or in Roanoke, totally unrelated to those organizations. This was an earlier reform movement that followed her as a false prophet. It just had the same name. That's the only thing it has in common with them. It turned out she was just a liar. And I don't know if it's worth telling you the whole story, but uh, people wondered how she was getting all this money because she was really accumulating quite a bit of it with fancy stuff. And she mentioned that God had showed her in vision that this wealthy person in Pennsylvania was her actual mother that she had been adopted when she was a child, 
and she had written the testimony, and the lady had included her in a will and had died and had left her all this money. Well, none of that was true. It was from the people who were supporting her and sending her money. That's where she got her money. Margaret Rowan ended up going to prison, and so that was the end of her movement. Then there was a man by the name of Victor Hutef. Victor Hutef lived here in California. So did Margaret Rowan. I don't know if any of that's interesting to you. And um, Victor Hutef lived in Southern California. And even in the 1930s, Southern California was not a bastion of fundamental Adventism. He saw things there that he knew were not in harmony with what God had said. And he began to teach a Sabbath school class that was more interesting than any other Sabbath school class in the area. People flocked to hear him because he could interpret minor prophets like no one you ever heard. And he could explain them, and it made sense, and you could see it, and it was just so beautiful. Victor Hutaf, and he began to explain like this, that the Bible was given to be understood, right? But it was being given to be understood by men on this earth. And the world's about to end. Does God waste anything? I'm speaking as if I was Victor Hutaf. Then isn't the whole Bible to be understood before Christ comes back? And who else is explaining these passages? And you know, the answer to that was, duh, nobody else is explaining those passages. And so the conclusion he presented is that it must be God is speaking through me. Can I tell you what's wrong with that logic just for a moment? God is trying to save simple-minded men. That's most of us. And we can't take too many ideas at one time. We get lost. So for the sake of saving us, he has made some truths, the central fundamental testing truths for our time, and has asked the church to focus on those things. There are other truths that were special truths for other places and other times, and some truths for individuals in certain places at certain times. But there are a few truths that are for all of us right now at this time, and that is the present truth, and it deserves focus. God doesn't even want us teaching on every passage all over the place for it all to be understood. Do you understand? But people weren't thinking that through under Victor. And um, he founded what became known and is still known as the Shepherd's Rod, the Divinian Movement, which is still prominent in some parts of the world today. And then there were others later. When I was in academy, there was Jeanine Citron in France. And I lost one of my good friends to her. And in the current time, there's more than one. But what Ellen White said is there were going to be scores. And I suppose I've missed some along the way. But it still seems to me there's more than 20 to go. Do you think we need to know how to tell the truth from the false? To be able? And so I'm going to just give you a few basic principles, and we'll go on to more. One thing Ellen White told A.T. Jones is that as a prominent man, he of all men should be most cautious. She said that if prominent men would pick up the productions of one of these prophets 
and would promote them, that it would bring on a tidal wave of fanaticism. And you know, in my mind's eye, it's easy for me to picture it. If everyone that Satan could give a vivid dream to and a spine-tingling feeling to would suddenly realize that they're part of the latter reign. Do you realize how many prophets we would have? And we're talking about, and what would be their favorite passage? It would be my passage too. Joel chapter 2, I'll prop my spirit upon all flesh. And you think that God anticipated what Satan might try to do. But before Satan, Satan has a method, and for it to work really well, he needs to have some prominent person really promote the thing. Do you follow? And if that happens, then anyway, in my mind, I'm just bracing myself for this disaster. Because we've been told quite a bit about it. What Satan would be trying to do is to create disgust in the world that we're trying to reach. They would conclude that we were just a bunch of odd people. They're going to conclude this anyway, but we, this would really deepen the impression. So if any of you want to read the article that I wrote that's somewhat related to Ernie, if you email me, I'll send it to you. Really, the issue with Ernie is mostly over, it seems to me. But the article has a lot of principles in it that might just be helpful in dealing with the next comer on the block. You know what's better than getting that article from me? It's you going to second selected messages and studying the first 11 chapters. Those chapters are all about this type of thing. Have you ever heard about the Mackin case? I think his name might have been Fred, Fred Mackin. The Mackins were a husband and wife team, and they began to have charismatic, ecstatic experiences that were just incredible. For example, um, they received the gift of foreign languages and were able to speak in the language of some Indian tribes. Um, she, her husband would, would give a sermon, and she would receive a song, and she could get up and sing it extemporaneously with power, quite a strong voice, words related to what her husband had just preached. I mean, make up a song. I like to make up songs, but if I'm doing it in public, I often have to sacrifice thought for rhyme. And so I don't do that. I mean, unless it's people I'm really close to. <laughs> the Mackins were humble enough that they went to visit Ellen White to ask her whether their experience was legit or illegitimate. And you can read the transcript of their discussion with her in Second Selected Messages. It's so interesting. What you gather is that these are the most sincere spiritual people that you've talked to in a long time. That they want to do things right. They don't want to have a bunch of gibberish. They don't want to get notoriety. And they just prayed for the Spirit, and this is what they received, and they're so excited about it. But isn't that humble to submit to have Ellen White validate what they're doing? And what she told them initially was that she had no light related to their case. 
But if she did receive any, she would get with them. But that it did remind her some of experiences she had in the 1840s. That wasn't a positive addition to what she had to say to them. You know, it was just a short time later she did receive a vision. God was giving them some time to develop their character. It was a trick of the devil. It wasn't real spirituality. But it sounds much more believable than any of the fault prophets I mentioned already in this presentation. I think if Ellen White hadn't been alive, there might have been a Mackin movement. Yeah. Were there motives false? Or they were not talking about I can't answer this question, but I can I could speak in their favor this way by saying that in the case of Anna Geimeyer that I mentioned, that when Ellen White's reproof was received by her, she accepted it as the voice of God, repudiated her visions as being um, simple dreams, and became a faithful worker. Amen. In other words, when we say that someone becomes a false prophet of this type, we're not saying necessarily that they're out to deceive anyone. Ellen White thought, faulted Anna's father more than Anna for encouraging her to think that these things were special. I remember once I was in Massachusetts, and a man there began to tell me about a dream he had had. It was like dreams I have. <laughs> and he really thought it was from heaven. And I can just imagine if I had given him an improper encouragement, I could have really messed that brother up. Um, so that's happened in the past. We don't hear about the Mackins after Elmite rebuked them. They disappear. That's not really in their favor, that particular detail. But can we at least say we don't really know their sincerity or lack thereof? At least with false prophets, sincerity doesn't get you off the hook. The Bible indicates that if you run and God has not sent you, this is a serious mistake. When you read this in Jeremiah 23, yeah, um, it's there. Let me turn there for a minute. Turn with me in your Bibles to it. Jeremiah chapter 23. Just for my own edification, how many of you think that you've probably read at least three or four of those ten chapters in Second Selected Messages in dealing with fanaticism and false prophets? So one, two. So this maybe is the main point of this lecture. Did God know we were going to meet this mess? He knew about it. And so what did he do? He gave us the tools to deal with it. And why do we end up falling for it? We just haven't read what he said. And so what am I recommending to you? Second selected messages, the first. That's it. Jeremiah chapter 23, we're looking at verse 1. <clears throat> Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Who is it in verse 1 that's responsible for scattering the sheep? It is. It's unfaithful pastors. It doesn't say woe be to all the pastors. It doesn't it clarify which ones the woe is to. 
-hmm. It's not a condemnation of pastors in general. Verse 2. Therefore thus saith the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, against the pastors that feed my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. So in verse 1 and 2, it's very clear that they're scattered by false shepherds. Verse 3, and I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries, whither, what does it say? I have driven them. So you get the idea that some people have been driven away by false teachers, some God has driven into other fields, and maybe there are people who fit in both categories at the same time. But what does God promise about those who've been driven away? He's going to bring them back. That's just what he said. I will bring them from where I've scattered them. They will be fruitful and increase, and I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. If we could just summarize the picture that's there, it's a simple one. God says that he is going to take the false shepherds, and he said, he didn't say exactly what he's going to do, but he said he's going to punish them, and he's going to gather the scattered sheep from the various places that they have been scattered, and he's going to set up over them true shepherds that'll feed them. Isn't that a beautiful promise? I think we can claim this promise about many places, maybe where some of you live. You can claim the promise that God will set up true shepherds. And maybe if you will study your Bibles for your life, you might qualify yourself to be part of the fulfillment of this promise. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. We're looking at verse 21. In 1991 or thereabout, maybe 92, I was in Arkansas and I heard a sermon by, it wasn't my better judgment that got a hold of me, I just forgot his name. Um, but maybe that's inspired, so it was by someone. And he was preaching on this very verse. Isaiah 1, and we're looking at verse 20. Oh, 21. How is the faithful city become, what does it say? An harlot. It was full of judgment, <clears throat> righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Your silver is become dross, your wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Is it clear to you in this passage that you could have a body of God's people that is so faithful that they're called the faithful city? And that over time, there could be such a change that they would become a harlot. Is that clear in the passage? I mean, a metaphor, and that the princes, the leaders would be corrupt. That could happen. What would God do about that? Look at verse 24. Therefore saith the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel... Ah, I will ease me of mine adversaries, 
and avenge me of mine enemies. When I first read this, I had the idea that the next verses would describe how God would destroy the unfaithful city. Doesn't that make good sense? It's a faithful city. It becomes a harlot. And God says, I'm going to get them. And they're gone. Isn't that like the Sodom Gomorrah picture? It's not what it says in Isaiah 1. Verse 25. And I will turn my hand upon thee and purely, what does it say? Purge away thy dross and take away all thy tin. It's a precious statement. Verse 26, And I will restore thy judges as at the first and thy counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called, what does it say? The city of righteousness, the faithful city. Is it true that a city could be go from faithful to being a harlot? Mm -hmm. It's true. Is that a one-way street? No. In fact, because of God's judgments, it will be reversed. God says that how's he going to reverse it? He's going to get vengeance on the false people, and he's going to replace them with true counselors as at the beginning. Isn't this a promise to claim? And what will be the result of faithful persons replacing them? What will happen to the city? It will, you know, Jesus says he will purely purge away its dross. It will be a faithful city. Doesn't that remind you of Malachi 3? Do you know what Malachi 3 says? Maybe we should should look at it. Turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. We're looking at verse 2. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who will stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Listen carefully. And he shall purify who? the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. Who were the Levites? They were the teaching priests. They were the priests who were scattered among all the people as the teachers of them. And God said when he's in the process of purifying his people, he's going to purify the sons of Levi. Haven't we just read about that in Isaiah and Jeremiah? He's going to read place the false pastors with pastors that will feed the flock. He's going to give his people counselors as at the beginning. He's going to purify the sons of Levi. These are just different ways of saying the same idea. Turns me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 51. Jeremiah chapter 51. We're looking at verse 6. You know, this is the chapter from which Revelation 18 draws its metaphors. And much Revelation is like that. Metaphors are drawn from some part of the Old Testament to lead you to study that part of the Old Testament. Revelation 18 is from Jeremiah 51, and you'll recognize verse 6. 
flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He will render unto her a recompense. God has said that a time is coming when he's going to punish Babylon and give her what she deserves. And what does he recommend to his people in Babylon? Flee, right? Run. Because if you stay, you will receive of her plagues. Isn't that the same idea in Revelation 18, that, like it's familiar to you? A good question would be, what if God's people, at least in character, was just as evil as Babylon? What would God do about that? Look at verse 5. For Israel has not been, what does it say? Forsaken, nor Judah of his God, of the Lord of hosts, though their land, what does it say? Was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. Does God say that Judah is faithful? No. He said, listen, even if her land is full of sin, she's not treated the same as Babylon. It's because God has different plans for them. He's going to remove the unfaithful from this camp so he doesn't need to destroy it. He's going to remove the faithful from this camp so that he can destroy it. Mm -hmm. And does he treat Babylon and Judah the same? Even if they have the same character, he doesn't treat them the same. He treats the individuals the same. You understand what I mean by that? The individuals aren't the same as the system. And the unfaithful individuals are treated the same, and faithful individuals are treated the same. But the systems were set up for a purpose. God allowed Babylon to exist for its purpose, and he created his people for his purpose. And there is a distinction. Look at verse 7. Babylon has been a golden cup. What does it say? Isn't that interesting? The metaphor of Babylon being a golden cup is more familiar to us. But who has the golden cup? The Lord has it here. And in this verse, he makes the nations to drink of the wine of the wrath of it. It's this idea. In 2 Thessalonians 2, we read about how the man of sin deceives with miracles the people. He deceives them in verses 8 and 9. But then in 10 and 11, God sends the people strong delusions. <clears throat> Satan deceives them, but God sends Satan's delusions to those who no longer deserve to have the light. Mm-hmm. What do you say? That he came, this is John 9, the last few verses, he said that for judgment he came to the earth, that those that see might be made blind, mm-hmm. and that those that are blind might see. Mm-hmm. It's the same idea of the metaphor of Babylon and Jerusalem. He came so that those that were unfaithful in Jerusalem might be led into Babylon. And those that were blinded in Babylon might have their eyes opened and led into the light of Jerusalem. It's God's intention for what's coming. They're really... Oh, that's right. I end at 45, don't I? Mm -hmm. So I want to do what I did last time and give you a three or four minute break and find some more of those testimony statements that will be helpful to you. Can I ask a quick question? You may. Is what you're talking about describing the shaking? 
It absolutely is describing the shaking. Yeah. A lot of the Bible is about this topic. Yes. Let's have a brief prayer and then a break while I look for some testimony statements. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would use your holy Bible. Use its truths to, to prepare us to stand against the wiles of the devil. That if a hutef is raised up in our midst, that we would pity him rather than follow him. Prepare us to be recipients of the latter rain and not the latter deceptions. And I ask for these gifts in the name of Jesus. Amen.